Welcome to Places, everyone. I'm Lonnie Firestone. In April, I had the pleasure of leading an evening event to celebrate August Wilson, specifically his play Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. This event was hosted by the Charles E. Smith Jewish Day School in Maryland, where the program I co-direct, Exploring Black Narratives, first took off. This conversation includes background on Wilson's life and the Great Migration in America, as well as a comparative discussion on the script of Ma Rainey and the Netflix film adaptation. Enjoy! Hi, good evening, everyone. So happy to be part of JDS's Beyond the Classroom literary series. I especially want to thank Sharon Metro and Wendy Kaplan for coordinating this great series and tonight's event. This past year, I created a new program called Exploring Black Narratives. My co-director, Kendall Pinckney, and I are working with schools to introduce students to contemporary plays by award-winning and path-making Black playwrights. This program, in fact, began at JDS. I'm grateful to Roz Landy for giving this program its first set of wings. At a time when we as Americans are taking a more direct look at race and racism, the role of artists and storytellers becomes all the more significant. Listening to storytellers is our gateway to caring about individuals and communities. August Wilson understood this, which is why his characters are by and large unextraordinary people when we first meet them. In fact, Ma Rainey is the rare August Wilson character who is based on a renowned person in real life. With all of Wilson's plays, the characters sound like the people Wilson knew in Pittsburgh where he grew up, many of whom, like Wilson's own mother, came up from the South and brought a Southern style with her. Ruben Santiago Hudson, who has performed in and directed nearly all of Wilson's plays, and who wrote the screenplay for the Netflix adaptation of Ma Rainey, has said, August's voice is distinct in the manner that he writes the way he heard the language. You have to remember that for hundreds of years in America, we weren't allowed to speak in public. August took that opportunity to be truly allowed to speak, to not be afraid to let his characters flourish in their language. So let's begin with context. Wilson was born and raised in Pittsburgh in a neighborhood called the Hill District. And most of the plays in his 10 play cycle are set there. His father was white and a German immigrant. He was not much of a presence in Wilson's life and split up from Wilson's mother, Daisy Wilson. Wilson spent his childhood with his mother and siblings and in homage to his mother, took on her last name. At the Pittsburgh High School where Wilson attended, he felt ostracized and he says that he received such unyielding torment by his classmates that he dropped out at age 15. He didn't have the heart to tell his mother he'd left school, so he would leave the house each morning as if heading to school, but in fact, walked to the Carnegie Library in Pittsburgh, where he read books throughout the day and created his own high school education. He also spent time with friends starting a theater group called the Black Horizon Theater. As an early playwright, he began to submit his work to the Eugene O'Neill Theater in Connecticut. He received four consecutive rounds of rejections, and the first play to be accepted to the theater was Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. 
Wilson went on to enjoy tremendous success in his career. Every one of his 10 plays has had a Broadway production. That's astoundingly rare. And it puts him in that most produced category of American playwrights, along with Arthur Miller, Eugene O'Neill, Tennessee Williams, Edward Albee, and David Mamet. These are all men, of course, but that's a topic for another event. <laughs> Wilson is also the rare playwright to receive two Pulitzer Prizes in honor that he does share with a female playwright, Lynn Nottage. Wilson's Pulitzers were awarded for the plays Fences and The Piano Lesson. Each play in Wilson's 10-play cycle depicts a specific decade in the 1900s. All in all, his cycle covers a century, and Ma Rainey is set in the 1920s. As you know, the play portrays a blues singer who traveled from the South to Chicago to make a record. When her band members arrive in the Northern City, they are deeply aware of the opportunities as well as the setbacks there. So it's safe to say they travel north with their emotional guards up. As Slow Drag, one of the band members says about why they're in Chicago, this is a recording session. I wanna get it right the first time and get on out of here. I'd like to offer a bit of context about what it meant for blues musicians in Georgia to travel north in the early 1900s. So let's take a wider lens and look at the backdrop of the Great Migration. For this, I owe a great debt of gratitude to Isabel Wilkerson's book, The Warmth of Other Sons. The Great Migration was immigration within one's own country, though of course Black people were American citizens before they migrated. Across six decades, starting in the 19-teens, about six million Black Southerners left their towns to move north and elsewhere across America. Wilkerson writes, this was the first mass act of independence for Black people. In the years following the Civil War, the 14th and 15th Amendments were added to the Constitution, offering equal protection and the right for Black men to vote. But Southern states largely ignored these rulings. And in 1896, the Supreme Court case, Plessy versus Ferguson, ruled in favor of the South, declaring that races should be separate but equal, which laid the groundwork for segregation. Segregation laws during Jim Crow marked a notable change from the time of slavery, when Blacks and whites interacted all the time. Wilkerson calls such interaction a contrived intimacy, because you had the horrors of slavery and yet Black people and white people were in close interaction on a daily basis. Jim Crow was an entirely different system. The intention was for Blacks and whites to never interact. Black people had to step off the sidewalk when a white person approached. Whites in the South would take on the expense of constructing separate waiting rooms, bathrooms, and elevators at doctor's offices, train stations, and the like. These were the expenses white people agreed to because the alternative was integration. This is a topic that writer Heather McGee documents in her recent book, The Sum of Us. It's noteworthy that in the start of the Netflix film, when you see the band members getting off the L train in Chicago, walking to the studio, they pass numerous white people on the way there. Remember that early scene? And they are not obligated to step off the sidewalk. And it's a notable choice by director George C. Wolf, that they know there's a different protocol up there. It lends a more confident pace to their walk. In the South, Black workers had no ability to develop 
and sustain their wealth. And while Northern states had been supportive of Black advancement, such as Black universities, the Northern countered so much hostility from Southern states that such support waned by the 1880s. Further in the South, there was a constant threat of violence, which the police allowed, if not encouraged. But the real precipitating event for mass migration northward was World War I. So these are the years just before Ma Rainey takes place, just about a decade. The North experienced a labor shortage and began courting Southern Blacks to their cities for jobs. Suddenly, Black people not only had a reason to leave the South, but also had a reason to go north for employment opportunities in cities like New York and Chicago, and in some cases, westward to California. So what did they find when they got there? Wilkerson writes that whites in the north were as interested in segregation as their southern counterparts, but they were not able to enact Jim Crow laws. So what they did do was they use economics to their advantage. Heather McGee writes that when generations of white people become beneficiaries of government benefits, they create actual economic superiority. Because Black people were not eligible for such benefits, white business owners wielded that power as Black migrants entered the workforce. Why do I mention all this? Because there is a common theme running through all the plays in Wilson's 10-play cycle, and that theme is the need to be paid what you're worth. There is a central character in every August Wilson play who speaks passionately about being respected for their work and being paid for their work. In the play Radio Golf, Wilson's final play, it's a real estate developer in the 1990s who expresses that theme. In the play Fences, it's a garbage collector in the 1950s. And in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, it's a blues singer in the 1920s. Ma Rainey may come across as fearless, and she is, but she has deep concern about the economic power that whites in the music industry hold. Does anybody have thoughts about this general context, the Great Migration and the movement up north that they would like to share before we move on to talking about the play? I'm curious to know if there were networks or social structures that permitted their admission to be more welcoming as opposed to just migration. Was there a social structure or a network that welcomed their arrival? That is an excellent question. I, I would have to research that further, but my guess would be based on Wilkerson's writing, would be prior migrants who had set up communities. In the, the opening of the play Ma Rainey, Wilson gives a little bit of a preface where he talks about how the streets of Chicago and the neighborhoods are starting to thrive with the sounds of blues music. And he notes this music is not starting in Chicago, it's starting in the South, and before that, it's starting in Africa. So he's saying that Someone comes, someone else comes, and they start to build certain community networks, and then they're able to welcome the next person in. One of the first things that happens in the Netflix film, less than one minute in, is we see Ma Rainey on stage performing for what appear to be hundreds of fans at a tent show in Georgia. This is a notable change from the script, in which Ma Rainey enters on page 48 
halfway, almost halfway through the story. The people who made this play, Ruben Santiago Hudson wrote the screenplay, George C. Wolfe did the directing. These are theater people. They're not people who just on a whim made a, a movie. They, they really know theater. So why did they decide to start with a performance right off the bat? And was that effective for you? Was that impactful? Mickey. It, it, it appears to almost be a necessity because you're doing, it was being done as a star vehicle. And when you have the star vehicle, you have to bring the star on very early. In the play, she comes on on page 48, you need an awful lot of exposition to build who this person is. And that's who he's trying to create an image. So then all of a sudden you see her. But here you're seeing her right in the beginning. You're seeing her down in the Bible Belt doing the tent show. And we're seeing that she's come from that end into being a performer, being a star, being a lead. Thank you. Yes, Joan. I think it was done in the film also to have a, a quick way to show how she gained her power, how she paid her dues, why she was demanding to earn what she was worth and to be treated with the respect that she demanded to be treated with. Because, and it gave you a, this very quickly. Absolutely. And she is a tough businesswoman. There's no doubt about that. She is a formidable presence who gives her producer and her manager a difficult day. And the reason she does that is because she says, as in the themes of August Wilson plays, I'm worth it. I deserve to get paid. And if I don't take ownership, I will be cut short. And what the play does is it makes us wait the same way it's making the characters wait. So we're anticipating meeting her just the way they're anticipating having her arrive. But in the film, Ruben Santiago Hudson, the screenwriter, or the screen adapter, said that in order for us to know why she's worth waiting for, people who may have had no experience with theater, August Wilson's plays, or the blues in general, we have to know right off the bat, not only she is this talented woman, she is as big as people say she is. And also when we see her performing, she is in her element. She is smiling. She's delighting being on stage. When Levy comes down for a trumpet solo, she's like, no, get that spotlight back on me. She's competitive with her fellow musicians. So she owns the spotlight and she demands to, to keep it. She knows what she's worth. It's an interesting question and I'm still on the fence of which is a more effective way to present this character. Another thought I'd love your reflections on is this is a show where making a blues record is the one thing that people are trying to do. Everything else that happens is like in the midst of making other plans. So what were your thoughts on hearing the blues music in the film, seeing Ma Rainey sing blues music, watching the band play, and hearing the way they talk about making music? How did some of those moments strike you? Debbie. I got the distinct feeling that Tensine was her and her glory. And everything after that was going somewhat downhill. Once they got her record, I got the feeling that there wasn't a big future for her because like they bought Levy songs for $5 a shot and then had that whole white group do it. I just got the feeling that 
once that record was made, it was just going to go downhill. I think that's right. And that's why she says to Sturdivant or to Irvin in the very end of the, and Sturdivant, in the end of the, the script, this is true in the script and the film, she says, the mistake you made, he said, I made a mistake not paying the right amount earlier. And she says, no, the mistake you made was knowing that I hadn't signed yet. And so uh, Ma knows that by signing, the ownership is transferred. And the mistake that Levy makes in his eagerness is he just hands it. He literally hands it with no promise or contract. That's a great point. Once it's recorded, you have it out for the, the audiences to purchase, but you also have this ownership by the studio. And there are many times when she says, is this even worth it? Because when she's performing in the South, she's in her element, she's on stage, the audience loves her. She's with her crowd, the audience is all black. She doesn't have to prove anything and there's no exploitation from the ownership of the studios. Great remark. I'd love to hear your thoughts about the two really big scenes that are new to the film. One came up in the question earlier about Levy's compulsive need to bust that door open. There's a line in the actual script where he says, why are we always in a different rehearsal room? I don't even know what's, what does this door even lead to? There's a line like that. And then it's, it's passed over. It's not dealt with. In the film, they really go there. He has a compulsive desire to bust it open. He opens it up finally, and it's an air shaft. The metaphor seems very clear. And I want to know your thoughts. Why is it in the movie? Because there are so many dramatic scenes between characters. So why did George C. Wolfe, who's a theater director who doesn't need to put in extra scenes, why did he put this in the film? Any thoughts on that? Just to show in, in a way how deeply trapped he is. He's trapped by his own personal history. He's trapped by the current events. He's trapped by the decisions he's making. It's almost like he's trapped. And unless he can figure out a way to fly up the, the air vent, he's still trapped. Great. Other thoughts? What did that moment feel like to you? Kelly? I think one, just on a um, technical level, because you're filming a play and there was it's so dialogue heavy, and that I think just rhythmically finding something that almost gives you a reason to move around the room. But I think it, it was a very clever um, device in terms of it having so many different meanings. And being a Black woman, I say that there's a joke. You're always looking for the exit. Whenever I go into a room or I'm on the subway, I'm always sitting next to the door. It's a very subtle thing that you learn how to do. And so it may seem like kind of a, a, a fidgety thing, but it's so ingrained in us to always know how to get out of something that no matter where you go, you're always making sure that there's some some place to get out. So I thought it was just clever on so many different levels. Thank you, Kelly. And having read all, I actually reread all of August Wilson's plays leading up to this evening. And as you read one play after another, you start to realize this is a playwright's playwright. There are scenes where people are just talking and you're just truly wondering where the scene is going. And you have to give yourself over to the August Wilson experience, which is it might not be going specifically anywhere. It is learning how people are talking to each other, friends, neighbors, business people, and just getting in the language, getting in the, the back and forth banter. 
so much teasing happens in this play that on the page I thought was very hostile. And then I realized, oh, it could be very buoyant. It just really depends on how it's done. That I can see how a director of a film, film being such a visual medium, felt that people who watch the film are typically not well-versed in plays. And they need a way to encapsulate so much of what Levy's feeling in a single shot. And what we see through so much of Levy's uh, buildup of emotion can also be captured by bursting open a door, expecting it to be the city of Chicago and finding basically a prison cell. So I think so much of this is George C. Wolfe knowing his medium, uh, knowing that he wouldn't do that on stage and knowing how effective it is in a cinematic form. I think Annette had her hand up earlier. For me, it was building his rage. And we saw the rage building, and to me, this was an example of the rage that then paralleled to what happened at the end. And so what happened at the end did not come in a vacuum. It was part of the thing. I also wanted to say that Ma Rady in the North is a voice. In the South, she's a person. And so while she is asserting herself, in the end, she really doesn't have control. Watching the way she drove away in the car, it was almost as if she understood there was nothing there for her. That's right. In that final scene, there's a sense that she has given herself up, even though she just had a successful recording session. That's right. And she says at one point in a conversation with Cutler, who really is her confidant of everyone in this play, it's certainly not Dusty May with whom she's having a relationship. Uh, Cutler is really the person she can tell her thoughts about her life to. She says exactly what you just said, that the voice is what the studio owners want. They don't have an appreciation for the music or for her. The final scene of the play is probably the biggest surprise for people who are familiar with the written play. For, for those who have only seen the film and have not read the play, is it a surprise to learn that this is not in the script, that a white choir is performing? A white band is doing Levy song. The, the play does not end this way. The play ends with Levy killing Toledo and Cutler saying, slow drag, please get Mr. Irvin in here. End of play. So what do you think it means to end the play on this auditory high note of a great jamming session, but all the performers, if you notice, are doing it in a very emotionless manner. And the conductor gives a quick nod to Sturdivant up in the booth. And this is the final visual and, and aural moment of the play. What does that do for you as a viewer? Lisa? I think also that this has something that when the, when the movie was made versus when the play was written, that, I mean, we've known for a long time that white people stole black people's music. It's known, but it wasn't really talked about so much, I guess. And perhaps it's more of a a contemporary idea that, that people are more comfortable putting out there now. It's not new that lots of white music we know is all rooted in the lots of black gospel and black blues and a lot of other things. 
So maybe it just wasn't something that August Wilson would have taken that next step to, but that in 2018, 19, when the movie was made, it was something that people felt more comfortable talking about. Mm. That's an interesting point. And it's true. When we hear Johnny Cash, we're hearing the blues, which is not white music. And uh, it's, it opens up a much wider conversation to say it's not so much that you can't play music that was not written specifically by people of your own background, but do you give the proper credit and respect? Do you give the proper payment if you have royalties? All these things are wrapped up in it. And do you show the acknowledgement if you're taking on another form? George C. Wolf actually had this sort of amusing remark in, in a making of a video that I watched saying that he had to tell the musicians and the conductor, be emotionless, because these might be quite talented musicians, <laughs> and this might be a talented conductor. But the point of the scene, I think, is very clear. It's that if you take on this music without proper credit and proper uh, respect, there's a line that he says, that George C. Wolfe says, if you're performing a catchy tune, but you have no ownership of the language or the world that it came from, it's at best a weak imitation and it's at worst robbery. So there's a sense of what is happening to this music that Levy gave over so earnestly? What is the outcome? Other thoughts before we, we wrap up here? Wondered if you want to speak for a moment about the scene where Levy character starts talking about God not liking Black men. And I think what was very poignant for me in looking at that scene was knowing that he died soon after the production was made. And I, I keep thinking about how does one actually do what he did? He was extraordinary in it. But that scene was also interesting because he also talks about Gabriel, and Gabriel is something that shows up in other Wilson plays, just the religiosity in there. I wonder if you had a comment about that. It's an extraordinary performance by Chadwick Boseman. It's such a formative final performance because even though he had so many more in him, I'm sure, and it's so tragic to have lost such a brilliant artist, the amount of work he did in portraying both real figures, so many of his characters that he performed on film were real life, Jackie Robinson and Thurgood Marshall and uh, James Brown. And these deeply emotional characters like Levy just leave such a great imprint on the art form. But as far as that scene, he's in still so raw from when he was eight years old and couldn't protect his mother. And the idea of hearing his mother say, Jesus, help me, God, help me, and having it come to nothing, having no salvation in that moment. And then years later, hearing Cutler, a, a fellow Black man, but someone who has a much more pure religious faith speak about God, it truly channels him backward in time about calling to, to God and having it not come to fruition. He's never reached a catharsis of what happened. So when he's talking to Sturdivant, he's channeling his father talking to the white men back in the South. There's a direct line of connection in him saying, oh, I know how to handle white people. You smile as you're about to do something. This is a direct channeling of what he felt as a child, seeing how his father was brave, but ultimately unable to get the result needed to seek revenge on his mother. 
Kelly's a, my friend and a fellow theater artist. And I wonder if you have thoughts about that, specifically about the idea of wrestling with God. Not to put you on the spot. <laughs> oh, no, I love having you put me on the spot, Lauren. <laughs> um, the God or the image that Black people were given or the spirituality that they were given when they were stripped of whatever they brought here with them was, was a white <laughs> Jesus, was a white God. So it was essentially a, another white man. So it's so natural for me to accept that Levy would say that he's rejecting just one more reflection of, of whiteness that is, that's, that's taken so much from him, even the higher power. So even when you call for that is a white person that you have to answer to, and he decides what's going to happen to you. So yeah, it's just, it's super compact. It's a lot. <laughs> Thanks, Kelly. So the... Real Ma Rainey recorded hundreds of songs, but she fell on hard times when records became harder to sell during the Great Depression. Uh, Paramount Records ended up dropping its contract with her. Of course, though, she did pave the way for so many legendary artists who became arguably much more famous than her. Bessie Smith was her protege who went on to become actually more famous, while Ma Rainey's called Mother of the Blues Bessie Smith is called Empress of the Blues, and it is much easier to find recordings and photos and all kinds of archives about Bessie Smith. Um, of course, in the next decade after, we then have Ella Fitzgerald, Billie Holiday, and different artists who got to enjoy their fame in their lifetime a little bit more. So it's arguable to say that Ma Rainey, though she wasn't so famous and we might have lost her if not for this play, honestly, uh, and August Wilson giving new life to her, she did lay a groundwork for being a recording artist, an actual recording artist, establishing the combination of cabaret and Black folk music. What is the blues? Making that music alive and in recorded form that we still have. And also lifting up other artists to gain success as jazz became a more formidable form and onward through, through music history. One painful note in her biography is that after she died in 1939 from a heart attack, her death certificate says that her profession was housekeeping. Oh. It is truly painful to hear that. I don't know through what process that was written, but that kind of erasure might be ongoing, if not for an artist like August Wilson, breathing this necessary life into this performer. As we close out, I just have some blues music to close us out this evening. Here we go. I just want to end with uh, one of Ma Rainey's lines from the play. Can you guys hear me? Ma says to Cutler, the blues helps you get out of bed in the morning. You get up knowing you ain't alone. There's something else in the world. This would be an empty world without the blues. I take that emptiness and I fill it up with something. Thank you all for joining me. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Places Everyone on iTunes or Spotify. 
And follow me, Lonnie Firestone, on Instagram. Podcast production and original music by Cody Crabb. Artwork by Jennifer Klockner. See you next time. 